This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled A True Free Market, Conversations of Gaining Liberty and Justice Through Economics. My guest, who's joining me from the New York City area or from New York State, is Stephen Taft. Welcome, sir, to the program. Yeah, good to be here, and I am in New York City. New York City. Well, it's a great town. I love visiting New York City. Uh, it's just a very active and energetic place. You have uh, a background, obviously, in uh, economics, and uh, have that been in, in your, your interest. Where did this book come from? What was the genesis of creating it? Well, the, the genesis was paying attention to the news, really, and seeing uh, through the course of generations how we don't seem to really solve any problems. We have uh, a debate in our culture that goes back and forth between making taxes higher or lower and making handouts higher or lower, uh, but nothing ever seems to get resolved. You have in your conversation the, 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 the term that uh, can be ambiguous from, depending on your interpretation, I guess, conversations on gaining liberty and justice through economics. That's a, that's a fascinating choice of words. Well, you know, the rules we make to define the way we interact with each other, which is what economics is all about, those rules become the definitions of our freedom. And uh, I am one who believes that smarter rules will give us greater freedom. The term of uh, financial responsibility and uh, those types of things that are being applied to today's economics, how do you foresee the, or how do you interpret the idea of financial growth, financial responsibility, as far as corporate America? Well, corporations, I think, have a responsibility to be profitable, uh, and they have a responsibility to make those profits in the context of their community. Now, uh, corporations get a bad uh, rap, as people say, uh, in today's world, but I, they are really following the rules, and different rules would incent corporations to behave somewhat differently, not in terms of the desire to make profit, that's always going to be there, but in terms of taking care of the community that they operate in. Are you a free market guy? Do you feel like I am, that's, a, that's a, good, I, a good choice? I am completely a free market guy. I am as bigger a believer, as big a believer in capitalism as you're ever likely to talk to. <laughs> I just don't believe we do it. Uh, as well as it could be done. There has been a trend towards uh, the, uh, the, the Band-Aid fix on people of low economic status, of uh, raising the, uh, the minimum wage. Do you feel that that is a solution? Is it a problem solver, or is it a problem maker? 
Interesting question, Jay. It's a it's a temporary solution, and in the long run, a, a problem maker. Uh, in other words, it's a it's a band aid that kind of will open up the wound again when it's ripped off. That's an example of uh, how we're not doing capitalism as well as it could be done. Uh, and what I mean by that is we tend to tax capital. We tend to tax the stuff that we make. We tax the rewards for our work. And what we really should be taxing is the opportunity that we use to uh, achieve those things in our work. And opportunity is, economically speaking, access to land. Mm. So it's like it's like going to a theater. People buy better seats and pay more money for better seats. And the promoter of that uh, event will collect the proceeds from those seats. But here the promoter of the event is our whole society. Mm -hmm. we're, we're promoting our economy. And so when people participate in the economy, they should pay for the quality of the seat that they're taking, uh, but the community should get that money. Are you seeing anybody in corporate America that is uh, giving back to the community in a big way or maybe a unique way that is benefiting not only the city or town they're in, but the region, maybe even the United States as a whole? Well, I, I, I don't know if you're asking about charity. Uh, sort of there charity, are certainly maybe. companies that do uh, good work, uh, companies that, that try to take care of their employees uh, better than others do. But uh, the way capitalism works is a company's efforts are uh, creating wealth that feeds back into the community. So it's just a question of where that uh, wealth is drawn from. 262 pages as you begin to share your insight. How long did it take and who was your audience? Who's the, the one that's going to benefit the most from reading your book, A True Free Market? How long did it take? It took about four and a half years uh, half to years. actually write the book uh, because I do have a day job. <laughs> and it's, but it took about 25 years to think about it. And I didn't want to put it out there until I really felt like I knew what I was talking about. Uh, and in terms of the audience, anyone who, who might be inclined to read uh, one of the longer articles in a national newspaper, anyone who uh, pays attention to politics and gets frustrated by it, by our current conversation, people who have a sense that there's something off in our economy and can't quite put their finger on it, I think these these are the people who may even gain some, dare I say, pleasure in reading a book on economics. Describe your writing style, because I'm seeing that there's a conversational approach. You have uh, set up dialogue and scenarios in your book that would engage the reader. Uh, that was a very intentional choice, although initially not a popular one in the people who, from people who represent the publishing world. But my feeling was that a conversation, as you suggested, would be more engaging. There are two main characters in the book. They are old friends. They've been meeting regularly for decades and recently have gotten on the topic of economics. One 
has a uh, fantasy view of economics in mind that he wants to share with his friend, and his friend is grounded in our real economy. And what happens through the conversation is two things. One, it becomes very uh, easy to see where and why uh, we have the problems we do when you set reality against the fantasy. And by the end of the conversation, the second thing that happens is is that I believe there is some hope generated that the fantasy may not seem as far-fetched as it did in the beginning of the book. Do you address the fascination, I will say, in our current society with socialism and that approach to management of resources? I do address it, and I'll reiterate, I'm a capitalist. Mm. Uh, I, I think socialism has traction in our world because capitalism is not practiced properly. I, I know we don't have a lot of time, uh, but the book takes all the time that's needed to explain this. But by taxing, again, capital, by taxing our earnings, by taxing the stuff we make, the effect, when you get down to the roots of it, is to kind of disempower the low-level worker. And that power gets transferred up the economic food chain to the wealthy. Mm. And it maybe is a counterintuitive thing to say, but it becomes very clear how that works when one reads the book. Would you say creativity and inventiveness is suppressed by that approach? The socialism I'm referring to. Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, the, the imagination of, of a free people is always going to exceed the uh, imagination of any, uh, even the best central planner. Were there some challenges in completing this, Stephen? Just uh, on a personal level, there were challenges. My golf game got worse. <laughs> uh, my wife had to exhibit an extraordinary amount of patience uh, to give me the personal space to get this done. It was the kind of thing where, even though I was home, she was alone, in effect, because mm. I was working on this. And, uh, you know, it was just something that was basically, uh, once I understood what I, what I wanted to say, it became uh, a bucket list item that, that uh, just needed to get done for me. And, and she gave me the space to do it. In a couple of sentences or maybe a paragraph or two, I think it would be meaningful to my listeners to get your take on why they should get a copy of a true free market. What is the benefit they're going to receive from that? Well, the, I spoke with Tea Party people when the Tea Party uh, started to gain traction in our culture. And I also spoke with Occupy people and went down to Zuccotti Park when that was uh, going on. And there are great similarities between the two groups, even though they seem to be politically opposite. The similarities are that, that both extremes, if you will, uh, expressed a great dis dissatisfaction with the way things are. And neither of them, though, knew how to fix it. Mm. And this book kind of cuts right through the middle it's not about uh, politics in the traditional sense of one side is right and one side is wrong. It's all about what works. And I think the benefit to people for reading it will be a greater understanding of why things are the way they are 
but also uh, a greater hope that things can change and get better. You describe this as a hopeful book, then, a hopeful approach. Absolutely hopeful. Uh, I mean, without hope, it's hard to get up in the morning. True. It, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, while the, the cultural conversation, the media conversation, other than yours, Jay, you know, it, it goes back and forth without, uh, I think the media sometimes is more interested in the controversy of an argument than finding a solution. And this book tries to cut through that. Did you inspire yourself enough that you would continue and maybe have a follow-up book to this fine work that you have released? If, you know, it's a lot of effort, and I, I do have another book in mind. But if, if this book, A True Free Market, sort of just falls off the cultural cliff and, and uh, you know, fails, in effect, uh, I don't know how inclined I would be to write another. But if there is some sense that uh, it's making a difference, even if to a handful of people, uh, I would be very encouraged because conversations begin and spread with only a few people. You know, my fantasy, not that you asked, uh, but my fantasy would be to walk into a restaurant and two people at the bar would be talking about this book and they are complete strangers to me. If that ever happened, I would be an author heaven. I think you should be an author heaven. This is well done. I like the fact that you used a conversational, almost a narrative approach, uh, almost a fictional approach in sharing your fine insight into financial and economic growth. title of the book is A True Free Market, Conversations on Gaining Liberty and Justice Through Economics. My guest has been Stephen Taff. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N-T-A-F-T. For those of you who are doing a search online, Stephen, where can we get copies of your book? Uh, a True Free Market is available on uh, Amazon, uh, both as the hard book and, and the Kindle ebook, uh, on Barnes & Noble, on uh, Apple Books and Google Books. And if you walk into a local bookstore, uh, they can order it for you as well. Congratulations on the completion of this, I think, a very fine book on economics, A True Free Market, Conversations on Gaining Liberty and Justice Through Economics. My guest, Stephen Taff. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. It was great to be with you, Jay. Thank you. My pleasure. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Congratulations on being the proud owner of an adorable, soft, cuddly, sweet-smelling, smiling, cooing, hungry, tired, gassy, screaming little bundle of joy. So now what? Where's the owner's manual for this thing? Where are my instructions? Right here. It's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Infant care specialist Blythe Lipman has worked with babies for over 20 years and works extensively with new parents providing workshops, in-home visits, tips, and daily phone calls to ease those frazzled nerves. With baby and toddler instructions, you can get the advice you need on how to survive and enjoy your baby's first year. For more information on Blythe and how she can help you, go to babyinstructions.com. From 32 ways to stop a baby from crying to 14 ways to get a baby to eat and so much more, it's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. 
Greetings for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. Today we have a book that's intriguing by title, Tomorrow I'm Dead. And our author, who joins me from the Washington State area, is Bon Yom. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. I'm glad to be here with you. Yes, and for my listeners, I will tell them that you are originally, your parents were originally from Thailand. Uh, you were born or raised in Cambodia back in the 70s when things were not doing well. In 1975, the back of your book says U.S. troops had withdrawn from Cambodia, leaving the people defenseless against Pol Pot's army, the Khmer Rouge. As the army took over Cambodia, thousands of innocent people were ordered out of their homes. In April 1975, 14-year-old Bun Yom was forced at gunpoint along with his family to march toward the steaming jungle. After a soldier separated Yom from his family, he had no idea he would not see them again for nine years. And so begins your story. Tell us, first of all, Bon, how did you arrive in the United States, and what is the uh, census of your story? Tomorrow I'm dead. Share that story for us. Uh, thank you for all the out there and listen. I would like to tell my story, true story, because I've been in the killing field back 1960 when I was born, and until 1975, my family have freedom. And April 1975, when I United 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 States take army out from the Cambodia and the Khmer to to take over control of Cambodia and take four people out to the jungle, a million million people complete out wow. in the jungle. And it was called the and then they, it was called the killing fields because they were systematically eliminating the people of Cambodia. Yeah, they call it killing field because they force our people out. Rich people, poor people, middle people, smart people, they force out outside in the jungle and then they they tell us, they say no more rich, no more poor, no more teacher, no more student, no more smart people. They use all the same people out there. And that was communism at its worst. Yeah. After after poor people out complete in the city, nobody, nobody in the city, and then the poor people go to work outside, in the inside the jungle, and then they've been treat us to death, and people been died, died, died every, every, every day, every minute, every year, a lot of people die. Your book title, Tomorrow I'm Dead, was that because of your fear of the future, or was it because of starvation, lack of food, and other uh, things that were happening? Uh, my title, Tomorrow I'm Dead, that means uh, that year when I kept with the Khmeru, forced me work for two years and a half, and the death one super soup right, and work 24 hours on the clock, and I pray for help. If I get out from a criminal, I've been come out and help more people, and that year I do. I escape. Mm. A lot of people out there come help. I escape and then I join army, and then we fight back and then we take people in the jungle. Thousand million come out and save them, and then join army. And one day when I my army get hurt and my boss they do bad to me, so I get mad myself. Next next day, I tell all my crew, I say, well, we don't want all crew get hurt and blood come up from the body, so we need to do something. And I just decide myself, I say, well, 
I got to do something. I want to make time. Tomorrow I'm dead. I don't scare dead anymore because a lot of people out there starving, hungry, all, every day, every time. So we need to go down there to help people. And how old were you when you joined the Army? Uh, when I joined the Army, I'm 17 years old. You were 17. And how did you survive the killing fields? How did you personally escape that horrible adventure or horrible uh, part of your life? Um, in the killing field, they forced all my boy and girl work very hard and eat one scoop of soup, right? You barely see the right, a lot of soup, a lot of water mm. and salt. And that year, my skin, my skin, my bones stick together and I have no hair. I have no meat in my body mm. that year. And then my friend been died, keep dying every day. And that's, that year, when I'm hungry, I got eat everything I can and can find. I eat raw meat, I eat snake, I eat fish, I eat crab, I eat everything. When it come around my face, I just crab and eat them. Mm. So get more energy day by day. Next day, I'm not dead yet. That's why I said tomorrow I'm dead. My title. Yes. You you were educated to some degree. Uh, how was your education prior to this incident? My education, because I was a student that year, and then they take a test. They say, I'm a student. I say, no, I am a farmer. If I'm a student, they didn't kill me already that year, because I'm lying that, that day when I get, hmm. get a meeting with them. So being a the student... Poor people, yes. they keep... The rich people, they kill them all, and white people, they kill them all, and students, they kill them all, teachers, kill them all, smart people, they kill them all. They put on these people who don't know nothing, and then they keep them, and go to work on around the clock, it's not enough, and then people die again. Wow. They're the communists. Very, very, very difficult time. You uh, escaped or left the Cambodian Freedom Army at some point. How long were you with the Cambodian Freedom Army, and how did you uh, leave? How was it possible to leave? Um, that year, I'm single. I got five brothers and sisters, and then all separate. The Khmeru are separate. All my, my brother and my sister are different ways, so I go by myself. That year, when I joined the Army, I think myself, I, I cannot find my parents. I cannot find my brother, my sister. I think they already died because I almost died a couple of times already in the killing field. And uh, when I joined the army, I didn't help people, sell them a thousand, a thousand, a lot, a thousand, a thousand. Every every time I go to Cambodia, take people out, sell them. And then that one that that one year, my mom found me. Mm. My mom found me. I'm still in a in a fight with the Cambodian Freedom Army. And then when my mom found me, I said, wow, I separated my mom from 75 until 1983. My mom found me. I don't want tomorrow I'm die anymore. I decide myself. And I just walked away from my army that that day and go to Thailand. My parents live in a refugee camp that year. And that, so that gave I you... I just walked away from my army. Yeah. That gave you courage and, and a reason to, to no longer fight. Yeah. Because I'm scared to die because I'm a top man that year because I, I'm not afraid to die at all. Mm. 
there must have been some values, some values that your parents or you had by culture that helped you survive this very difficult time. What were those, and how did you incorporate those into your desire to live? Um, when my mom found me, and then my mom told me that I found your brother, I found your sister, I found your young brother already. I know, wow, that mm. my brother, my sister is still alive. So then my mom said, you need to come here, fail, because we don't want you war, because your brother, sister already alive. Wow. So I decide, because that day, that last year, that day when I go to fight, that's the people in the jungle, they already out already because 1979, when the Vietnam come, fight with the Khmeru. So I'm Cambodian Freedom Army. We fight both ways. We fight Cambodia, we fight, we fight Khmeru, we fight with Vietnam both ways, and no people, no reason to stay for my life, mm. to kill in the jungle for nothing. That's why I decided to walk away from them. Everything saved that year. Everything was everything had changed from what your original aspirations were with that uh, Freedom Army. You were there for about yeah. two, two and a half years, or is that right? Or were you just, uh, I guess you were rescued after two and a half years in the original condition with the uh, communist dictatorship. Yeah, I'd been uh, trapped with a criminal for two and a half years. And then the Cambodian Freedom, they're still alive, they sneak in at night, they Take all my crew out, my crew, 200, 200 people, which escaped that night with mm. them. Abon, how, how, how did you get to the United States? How did you come here? And your English is quite quite good. How long did it take you to get comfortable with the American way of life? Uh, the first of all, my mom found me, and my mom found me, and then I decided, again, I need to get out. I want to quit army. So I do, and I did, but... Uh, I go to Thailand first. To go to Thailand, my uncle live in a Thailand, and I tell my uncle, tell my mom, my mom, my dad in a refugee camp in Cambodia, and then my mom come see me, and then my uncle how, and he say, son, stay there. So next day, and uh, UN, UN look like Red Cross, they come pick me up to stay with my parents, and then my parents, they found my young brother in United States, 1975. From a uh, United Methodist Church, they sponsor my uncle. Wonderful. And then my mom found my uncle. Yeah. And then my uncle sponsored my mom, my dad, my young brother, from a uh, church, United Methodist Church. And yes. then they come here first, and then they sponsor my family step by step. That's great. That's and then a- come to and come to United States, Atlanta, Washington. Wonderful. There there probably are some important messages and things to learn from your book. Why should my listeners get a copy of your book? What do you think they will learn from reading your story? What is the inspiration they will take from it? Um, I, wa- I want to tell all water how to survive when, when the killing, killing fear comes up, the next future, because I've been experiencing already. So I like to tell people how to save themselves and save to others. That's it, why my story, I got experience in survival. And there's some inspi- the and inspiration there as well, correct? Yeah. Your motivation was positive. Your outcome was positive. You went through a very difficult time. 
And is this a uh, uh, this is only uh, two hundred pages? How long did it take you to uh, to write your book? Um, that year, take me two months to write my story. Only my two book. months. Wow, incredible! You have uh, a, a one. I'm right. I'm right. Cambodia first, and then I go find my friend, translate to English for two years. Uh, two months be done. One one book that year. Amazing. Are are you writing other stories related to your life? Yeah, right now all the people, all the people they read my story. The first book right now they want a second book from uh, how I do in United States. My, that's why I'm start already. Say welcome to America. How I survive in USA. Excellent. My title. Excellent. This book is titled "Tomorrow I'm Dead: A Memoir," and my author has been Boon Yom. It's B-U-N, last name Y-O-M. You can do a search online and find him, and not only this book, but the next book that he will uh, be writing. You can also locate his book on Amazon.com, at Barnes & Noble, and other great booksellers around the world. This is a story that should inspire you and also perhaps give you a cautionary tale about what can happen when you're not watching as a country, and uh, how this uh, turned to to a bad situation in Cambodia, and how he survived, not only him, but his family as well. Thank you for joining me today. You also have a website, correct? Yes, I have a website. And what is that? Let's go to uh, www.iuverso.com, bookstep. All right, sir. And uh, do you also have one under your personal name, bunyom.com? Yes, com. Very, very good, sir. Look forward to visiting with you in the future, and best of luck as you are making this difficult uh, and yet rewarding trans transition into uh, life in the United States over the last few years. Best to you and your family, and we hope to hear from you in the near future, sir. Thank you. Thank you very much. My pleasure. For, in, for iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings from iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled Our Emotional Footprint. Ordinary People and Their Extraordinary Lives. Joining me from California is Saul Levine, M.D. Dr. Levine, welcome to the program, sir. 
Thanks for having me, Jay. My pleasure. I uh, understand uh, from reading some of your history, you have a diverse background, uh, raised in Canada to some degree, at least educated there, and now living in California. You also have written five other books for the general public. This is a unique read. You have apparently an interest in the movie industry. Your book takes on some of the characterizations of uh, Strangers on a Train, Alfred Hitchcock's classic. Dr. Levine, share with my listeners the inspiration behind what you've done, the creative process that went into writing this book. Well, let's start with the format. The format is, uh, as you said, Strangers on a Train. And I, what I've done is taken, um, sitting on, a, on an Amtrak car, that's a dirty word nowadays, uh, ten people who don't know each other, ten strangers, from all walks of life, different races, different backgrounds, and you sitting in the car with them, observing them, are making some kind of thoughts to yourself about, wonder what they're all about. He looks disheveled, she looks beautiful, or sad, or whatever. And then I proceed to tell each of their ten stories. These are true stories, but they're kind of uh, aggregates of a number of people, so nobody will be recognized. These are not psychiatric patients. These are thee and me. These are about everybody. And the point of the book and the point of uh, a lot of what I say with you asked about movies is that everybody leads a very interesting life. Even if you scratch the surface of everybody's life, I've learned over the years of doing research and, and working with people that they have highs and lows and loves and losses and successes and setbacks. This is life. When I was a an adolescent, I thought we had a straight line trajectory to success, bigger, better, more healthy. Well, you know, uh, life has its own game plan for you. There's a German expression, man traf Gott lacht, means man plans and God laughs. Mm-hmm. So all lives are convoluted. There's not a person I've met, and I've met many, who does not have this kind of life filled with drama, a rich tapestry of colors, of textures, of, of, of sadnesses and of elation. And it's really important that people recognize that. This is, that, and, and incorporate that and grow from the successes and the failures. Embrace both because you're going to learn from both. The second, you asked about the origin of the book. I've always sure. been writing about people in different kinds of situations. It's my interest, it's my profession actually as a psychiatrist and teacher. But I'm uh, I'm interested in it started with my own father to tell you the truth he was brought uh, brought up in pre uh, World War II Eastern Europe uh, he was a Jewish man uh, there were anti-Semitic pogroms there were beatings there was violence there was abject poverty and he came to North America without a penny without speaking English without anything uh, escaping the Nazis who destroyed most of his family and the uh, home country which was also anti-Semitic. Yes. And he became a self-taught, cultured, soft-spoken, tolerant, loving man. I, that's what I was brought up with, this guy who mm. was very strong, worked ma- manual, I'd say menial labor jobs until he could start a business of his own, was never very successful financially, but was successful in that he imbued everybody he came in contact with with a sense of warmth and being cared for and respect and a sense of interest in them. And that's our emotional footprint, which is why I've written the book. It's He was able to, in spite of everything that happened to him, and actually in his adult life, as, as during my, my own life with him growing up, wasn't a piece of cake. He had no money. Um, 
he uh, went bankrupt once in his later life. Uh, he, he had a very sick son uh, next to me who was a was autistic, retarded child. Mm. He had uh, setbacks in many ways. He had difficulties at times with my mom. But the fact is, he never lost his loving kindness. When I moved out to California, finally, he came out spent the uh, winters here with me. Uh, all my friends, uh, they tolerated me, but they just fell in love with this guy because... He uh, was a, a this this uh, his emotional footprint was so wonderful. Well, so, so and he lived to, lived to be ninety one years old. Also, is that correct? He he did live to be ninety one, and he still lives uh, larger than life, and not only my life but all the life he's done. And actually, when I talk about emotional footprint, which is the way we affect ourselves, each other, our communities, our world, uh, it's also it is also not only that we're here leaving that footprint. But it's after we're gone, because it's not the toys and the material things you accumulate. It's what you've imbued people with. How do they remember you? What was the, the mood that you, you uh, the ripple effect of your mood that you permeated the place with? And you've underscored so, that with the four, the four Bs, correct? Share with the, my listeners what the four Bs are that you uh, focus on. The, the four Bs are being, a sense of yourself, a belonging, a sense of belonging to uh, a group of people. It could be a family, a community, a club, or whatever, um, uh, belief, believing in a set of values, not necessarily in a God if you're not, if you're an agnostic or atheist even, but believing in having some kind of spiritual belief or some kind of awe about the universe or some kind of wonder, but also a set of values as, uh, to, to live by. You're a principled man or woman, and you live by that. So, so it gives you, it's more than just materialism and get through the day. Right. And, and our families and our friends, of course, but also what is going on in my mind, uh, philosophically, spiritually, whether you're religious or not. And the last B is benevolence. What have I done for other people? Hmm. Uh, that's built into some religions, but I'm talking about humanism. I'm talking about caring for, uh, for others, nurturing others, extremely important. And it, all this started when I started working with young people who were, were actually in cults and then gangs, and they, no matter what they, trouble they may have gotten into, I won't go into the whole, uh, all the research, but these four things were very important. And then in later life, I was studying uh, my father's contemporaries in Florida, uh, who were all in their octogenarians by then, mm-hmm. and it was the same thing. It wasn't that I was a success, successful businessman or a beautiful person or had many lovers. Uh, what kind of a person was I? Can I look in the mirror and see this person, have respect for that person? And it was the four Bs. Am I feeling grounded in myself? Do I feel uh, comfortable in my own skin? Uh, do I take my mask off? Do I feel that I belong and I'm respected and loved, an integral part of a group of other people? Do I feel that I have principles in my life, values I uphold uh, on a daily basis? And, and lastly, have I been good to people? local people, people in my family, but also in the streets, in in the stores, elsewhere. I I, I have a thesis that I I mentioned, uh, and that is uh, that there's too much incivility in contemporary life. The airwaves and the uh, media and the um, Internet are full of trolls and nastiness and demeanment and anger, and this has a ripple effect. All this, our footprints, positive and negative, affect the way people feel after they leave us, or leave our immediacy. I've seen people, and I'm sure you have too, Jay, 
in the stores and restaurants and everything, being rude, rude to waiters, rude to uh, to the fellow uh, clients, Can't rude to, to uh, everybody, mm-hmm. and feel that they have this right. And they, it's but it's almost like listening to. I won't mention any names, but uh, special <laughs> pundits on the radio right. or elsewhere who have this feeling that they have total license in saying and uh, anything they want negative about somebody else, demeaning, criticizing. And it, it's it's uh, it's so that these are held up as examples to young children. This is the way my father is. This is the way this famous person is. This is the way our politicians are. We can be rude. We can be uh, hypocritical. We can be nasty. We can be corrupt. This is a way of life. So the the emotional footprint is about these people that I talk about on the train is not their saints and not that they're sinners. They have had dramatic lives and interesting lives from all walks of life. Uh, and, but and at the end of the day, when they're dying, these are their life stories. And when, they, when they're looking back, they look at the four Bs. They look at, uh, have they been resilient? Have they come back? And they look especially at what kind of a person have I been to my friends, my family, my community. The people that and, you highlight in your book, you, the way you have approached this, just for my listeners' sake, is almost as though it's a fictional novel, the conversational style that you've used. And then you bring out in encapsulated form the the basic focus of what that individual may have gone through in life that brought them to this point. Would that be a, a correct way to describe what you have I've penned? Right. And if you've looked at the people, they're all so different in both genders and ethnic background, racism and, and uh, how they're living. But, and none of them, none of them has had an easy time in the sense that well, nobody does. It totally, life can be very challenging. And some, sometimes they've done things they uh, should have been, quote, ashamed of. Or a couple of them went to jail for a while. A couple of them had to be hospitalized for a while in rehab centers. But in, if you look at them in the whole breadth and length of their, and depth of their lives, from zero to uh, the end of their life, you, there's a summation you make at the end. And I helped make it. Uh, I knew these people. I knew some of these. I knew all of these people, but they're conglomerates, as I said. And um, they were all good people, even though in the course of their life they've done some harsh things. They tried to compensate for it. They tried to overcome. They tried for redemption. And uh, I think that's what life's all about, to try to learn from our mistakes and correct ourselves. Not everybody can, but the vast majority do. Is that why you call them extraordinary? Well, I want to make sure that when I say ordinary, people don't say, oh, yeah, mediocre. I'm Mm. more interested, they will say, in the celebrities of the world. And the purpose of this book is you don't have to follow the lead lead or the lives of the Kardashians or about uh, the other kinds of shows that are on TV, the reality TV shows, and I can name a whole bunch of them, because you have that in your own life. You have the the richness of texture and color of your own life, and and, uh, this is to get people to appreciate their own lives. And I do say extraordinary because we are all extraordinary. And actually, I was going to call this book from a piece of music called Fanfare for the Common Man. Yes. I was told, don't use the word common man, because nobody wants to be seen as common. But the fact is that using that that analogy, I don't mean by a common man just a mediocre. I mean all men are beyond, and women are beyond common. They are extraordinary. Extraordinary. I didn't know the right word to use, but this does it. I wanted to make extra with a hyphen ordinary. So that we are, this book is not about celebrities. It is not about people who have made it big. 
It's about you and me. And uh, I hope I do. I've done it justice in this book. I'm I'm very proud of it. I love the way it's uh, it's laid out. I think it uh, makes it very engaging. It's not a technical book. It's one that is uh, very conversational and touches the emotions because of the way you've described it. You've described ten extraordinary people in your book. Of those ten, is there one story that to you was the most poignant that you've shared? You know, I'll tell you, Jay, it's a terrific question. I, I was thinking about that. I don't have a favorite. Mm. Uh, I, I think I start off the book with a, a woman who uh, was uh, not very attractive. I hate to use that. It sounds so sexist, but she was demeaned <laughs> by others around her. She was quite heavy, obese. Her family was uh, in, in a difficult family. There were just two parents one who thought she should be a movie star, and, a and a, her father was somebody who worked as a ship steward. And the mother actually abandoned this child when she was about uh, 10 or 11 years of age. And father then gave her up to his own, to his mother's, sorry, to his mother-in-law. The, the, the mother disappeared completely. Mm. And uh, this girl, this young girl, and a grandma, a grandma that never really wanted her, but they developed a kind of caring for each other. They were both kind of homely and kind of obese. And they developed this kind of uh, partnership. Uh, and this girl went back to school, and she did well in school, and was still re uh, treated badly because she was heavy. Um, finished high school, went to college, uh, was a good student, um, became interested in, in religion. That started, her parents were forcing her to go to church, but they had no interest in it itself. But she went back to Catholicism. And that stayed with her. And actually, she was she had no boyfriends ever. Hmm. Uh, she never thought she'd have any kind of love relationship, romance. And all that came to her in the next few years. She actually ended up, I don't want to give it all away in a sense, but she ended up an amazing person. She ended up uh, for uh, working with the Roman Catholic Church in a major diocese, uh, would help on Sundays, but became actually a very strong public activist for the rights of women in the Catholic Church before this particular pope. She's still alive. She's around 70 right now and is very active with the, um, the uh, Vatican because suddenly they've caught up to her because she has uh, led the way in a, and went for, for a lot of uh, Canadian and American nuns to ask for more power, more recognition uh, in the church for women. And one last thing, she actually met a man and had a passionate affair for over 15 years, all the while belonging to the church. And this guy was, was uh, a very well-known man, but uh, was married to another woman in another city. But they kept it up for 15 years until she said she washed her hands of him. So it's just a fascinating story. Nothing in that story is untrue. Well, there's, there's, and there's 10 stories just like that, maybe with different themes and focuses. But uh, the title of the book, again, is Our Emotional Footprint, Ordinary People and Their Extraordinary Lives. Our guest, Dr. Saul Levine, M.D., has joined me from California. Saul, where can my listeners get copies of this? Because, I, again, it's, it's not a technical book, but it does have some very important topic material that you've covered in a very conversational manner. So I think it's a, a fine book. How do we get a hold of it? Uh, any, uh, you can get it through e-books on Amazon or Barnes & Noble on a number of, of uh, e-sites, and uh, you can order it through bookstores. And it has a hard copy. It's, uh, it's a soft cover book, but the hard copies are not very expensive, 1895. 
and uh, I hope it's it's doing very well without the marketing having begun just by my telling people about it, and they're reading it and liking it and ordering it. So I, I, it's a good read, but it's also important for the reader that they resonate with their own lives when reading the stories of these 10 people. And it's a unique approach. Thank you, sir, for joining me today and sharing your story. Thank you very much, Abe, for calling. Look forward to visiting with you again. I know there will be more books in the future, having your background and uh, your history. So thank you for joining me. Thank you. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.